0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Is there anyone who God does not desire to save? Is there then anyone who we would just as soon not have around us? (laughs) Loaded question. Last Sunday we opened the Gospel, the Evangelion. The proclamation of good news. Remember, comparing it to even a greeting card that you would open up and and it cheers the heart and it enlightens the soul. And it's far more than simply a card. It is life. And it's the message that we as followers of Jesus have. And for the second week in a row, I'm really talking to followers of Jesus. Speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to stay with this theme of the Gospel this morning. I didn't originally intend to, but I believe the Lord would give it a little more breadth, a little more understanding. Because the Bible magnifies the Gospel in a way that makes the past present. God's Word magnifies the Gospel in a way that makes the present future. That we don't just share in some kind of good news of some past commemorative event. See, the Gospel is the Gospel of of the kingdom. Not of a kingdom past, a kingdom once seen, but of the kingdom realized, of the kingdom coming. It's a kingdom that was inaugurated with a single word. And not a word I would have expected. Now I want to tell you right up front that this past week our staff was down at the Calvary Chapel Northwest Pastors Conference And the theme of that conference was the kingdom of God. And a few of the things I'm going to share with you this morning, I am boldly ripping off from some of the speakers that we heard, because that's good preaching. (laughs) Things that we need to consider, things that shook me. So the Bible says we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, but that doesn't mean that we can't be shaken, nor does it mean that we shouldn't be shaken. The kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom. And again, it was inaugurated with a word. This is what I didn't expect to discover as I began to study out and and think through and process what I had heard this last week, but also through the word of God, thinking about the kingdom. The very first word. It is a word that must precede the kingdom. We hear it first out of the mouth of John the Baptist, and then Jesus followed suit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to talk about the gospel of the kingdom this morning, but I realized that I could not until I first. Repented. We had on September 1st a shepherd and staff uh, prayer evening. We we worshiped together and then we talked about a few things and then we split off into groups to pray. And then we came back together and talked about what it was that that we were hearing. And it was intended to be an evening of listening and really pressing into the Lord to hear what He might have to say for our fellowship in this season. And a lot of things were shared that evening. There was a lot of of, of words given, a lot of talking among us. And only one thing that I can point to that I know with assurance was from the Lord. See, I came into the evening saying, Lord, speak to us. Give us your word. Give us your direction. And one word came out of the night. One word stuck and, and held fast. And it's that word... Repent. Several people heard that as we were praying, and several people brought it up, and I don't like repentance. Can I just tell you? I don't like repentance. I don't like the idea. I mean, it shows weakness, right? It implies need. It strips off self-righteousness until we're just kind of left bare and naked before the Lord. Repent? So I wondered, I heard that. Repent. And I wondered, repent of what? We're doing a good job here, Lord. Repent of what? It took a few days, okay, weeks. It took the entire month. (laughs) And I listened and I prayed and I kept asking this question what am I to repent of? See, I'm not asking you all to repent, I'm just hearing myself. Lord, what am I to repent of? In my personal life, what am I to repent of as a pastor? And I realized how like Ephesus I tend to be. Toiling. Revelation 2 verses 1-5 through describes this persevering, intolerant of evil, combating false teaching. I read that list and I think, that's me. Now I'm speaking with foolish arrogance here. But, man, I like the truth. And I like to preach the truth, even if it's about rancid pudding. I like <laughs> the truth. And I will speak my mind. Now listen, I, I love Jesus. But what hit me is, while I know I haven't forgotten Him, I know I have from time to time forgotten how our first love loves. And if you read Revelation 2, verses 1 through 5, that is the the prescription for the church at Ephesus, which I believe is an overlay of the first century church. Jesus saying, I know your toil, and I know your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate false teachings. I know you stand strong. But I have this one thing against you. You have forgotten your first love. And I, I went over that in my own mind and in my own prayer, and I said, "Well, Lord, I, I love you, but I have at times forgotten how my first love loves." So we arrive at the seminar Monday morning. We get all settled, and I pull out the little piece of paper that tells us what the breakout sessions are going to be in the afternoon. There's a lot of teaching and a lot of worship that takes place, but in the afternoons at this at this conference, they always have five or six or maybe eight different groups. I had heard there was going to be a group on senior pastors and worship leaders and how they can work together. And, and with all the conflict that Rachel and I have, I thought that would be a good group for us. <laughs> right? And that wasn't even on the list. I was a little disappointed. I began to read down the list and I didn't like what I saw. Nothing really called my name. There was one that was teaching on homosexuality in the church and I said, I'm not going there. I don't want to go to that. I mean that, I'm telling you, that is, that was my reaction. I don't want to go. And God said, oh, you're going. (laughs) And there was, there was, I kid you not, a little battle in the third row of Calvary Fellowship that, that morning as I just struggled with this. I don't want to, because I'm tired of the issue. I've talked about the issue. I don't want to deal with the issue. And God said, well, Les is going. Jake, yeah, that's the one he's going to go to. So I went and we sat down and I came out of that seminar shaken. I wasn't shaken in the truth of my understanding of the Word of God and what the Scriptures have to say, what the Scriptures teach. Not shaken in the least about that, but my compassion was awakened. And I started thinking in my zealousness to protect God's word, have I denied the same grace that I would so quickly offer to someone stuck in almost any other sin? They had a panel there, and, and on the panel it was led by a pastor uh, who is up on Capitol Hill, a calvary on Capitol Hill in the midst of a very, very heavily populated uh, region of homosexuals. So that he deals with this constantly every day. We're out here in you know North Whidbey Island, kind of out in the rural country, so we're not dealing with it so much. But he was the one who was leading the discussion, and then it was a gentleman who was a long-time born-again Christian, married with children, who had been struggling with same-sex attraction for years, sitting in church in shame and in guilt, and, and just writhing in internal pain because nobody knew. He told us this in tears. This was the first time he, he actually confessed it in a public forum. He said he had he had been he had walked away from that that burden fifteen years before. He had confessed to his wife, telling her, "You're going to probably want to leave me." She didn't. She stayed with him. She fought with him. They stayed together and worked through all of this. He sought help and and sought aid and and comfort and and encouragement. The second man who was there on the panel also had come out of that lifestyle. Struggled with Christian faith, with what the Bible taught, and with what he was drawn to, what he he felt attracted to. And then two more people on the panel, a a husband and wife, pastor and his wife whose daughter, 19-year-old daughter, came out as a lesbian a year ago. And so I was very moved before the conversation even really got going. And I began to wonder as we were challenged, are there levels to the love of Christ Jesus? Or are we not called to love all people? Convicted, I went back and I actually listened, and I don't do this because I don't like listening to the sound of my own voice. But I went back and I listened to a teaching I had done when we opened up the book of Romans out of Romans chapter 1. I thought, you know, I want to listen, I want to see how how I sound talking about this issue. And i got to tell you folks, the theology was sound, but my words were harsh. And as I listened, I realized that if I lived personally with feelings of same-sex attraction, not only would I not have made it to the grace offered in the last three minutes, but I would not have come back to this church. And it hit me that over the years, has there ever been anyone who has quietly sidled into the back row and, and, and listened, and were so offended Or so guilt-ridden or so shame-filled that they could not stay long enough to hear the gospel. And I have been dealing with this, struggling with this issue all week long. I got so tagged in my spirit because I love to stand on the truth. But sometimes I forget the grace on which we all stand. One of the questions asked in the seminar was, how long did it take you? How many times did you need to hear the Gospel before you finally said yes to it? And do we cut people off where they stand before they even have a chance to hear? So, I repent. I repent before you all, and I repent to the Lord. Not for teaching His Word. I don't repent for a single word I spoke that was His Word, but I repent for the tenor of my words. I repent for sometimes presenting harshly what was intended with compassion. I don't repent for calling out sin, but I do repent for times that I have called it out harshly. I repent for being more concerned with protecting our fellowship than seeking the lost. And I repent because I do believe the kingdom of God is at hand. We have been saying this for years. I know that I am among those who are supposed to bring the kingdom of God, bring the gospel of the kingdom of God into a dark and hopeless world. But if we close the doors to anyone who might be offensive to my sensibilities or yours, if we don't give people a chance to hear the gospel to experience the love of Jesus, then are we really delivering the message at all? I was thinking also through this week that and I said this to the Lord, I said, you know, Lord, if if I was going to plant a church in a dark region of the world with anybody, it would be with it be with you all. It would be with this group. If I could if we could take all of us and go to a really dark region and start a church. And the Lord said, um, that's what I did. <laughs> and I thought, wow. Look at what God has done. Look at the people that He's brought together. People whose lives have been saved by the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. And what is the mission before us until He comes? It is the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know, this world could use a good kingdom for a change. Amen? Amen. In Daniel chapter 2, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of his own nation. Along with the four nations that would follow, he saw a huge glorious statue. That golden head and and silver arms and bronze belly and iron legs and, and feet of iron and clay. But overall the statue was amazing and impressive. So impressive in fact that eventually Nebuchadnezzar would build a huge gold statue and call everybody to worship it. And then in this dream of this amazing monument to man, a stone cut out of a mountain but not with human hands, comes along and smashes it to pieces. And it really shakes up Nebuchadnezzar. But that is so often how human beings tend to see the nations and kingdoms of this world. Big, glorious, uh, beautiful monuments to humanity. Matthew chapter four, verse eight tells us the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and their glory. And truly the kingdoms of man can at times look glorious, be impressive. But in Daniel chapter 8, the prophet had a different vision. I believe he was given a God's eye view of the very same nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, on down the line. But what he saw was beastly. A lion with eagle's wings. A lumbering bear a leopard with four wings and four heads, and finally a beast with iron teeth, human eyes, ten horns, and a little horn popping out. And that's how God viewed the kingdoms of the world. Brian Broderson, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, he said, regardless of their outward attractiveness, treasure, literature, art, architecture, monuments, all nations have been characterized by oppression, Injustice, inequality, and cruelty. All nations. Obviously, some more so than others, he said, but it is true across the board. He went on to quote 18th century historian Edward Gibbon, who wrote, History is little more than the register of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. The nations have proven time and time again to be unmitigated disasters. The glory of man always falls. And anyone who would tell you otherwise is a politician. (laughs) (laughs) And even our own nation. Here we are. America is writhing and groaning from sin and from follies past and present. We need to set things right. But we can't. Try as we might, we can't. America was the great experiment to actually build a nation on Judeo-Christian ethics and values. We should have learned from Israel that was built on those same values. And here we are, and I want to tell you all this morning, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. At least by overview, because that is what we need. There is a kingdom coming. And it is glorious, and it is marvelous, and it will not be shaken. So we're going to go a little bit more topical this morning. We're going to launch here from 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read this one more time to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the Gospel. That's the Gospel. But it gets hands and feet when you start to consider it as the Gospel of the Kingdom. Turn back then with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. We are going to primarily stay in the Gospels this morning, and we're going to do a lot of jumping around within Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the first four books of the New Testament, Have spent some time here to consider this specific issue that is the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Skip ahead to Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-five. Matthew nine thirty-five. Where Matthew writes, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now that's in case you missed it the first time. Matthew repeats it almost word for word. In Matthew 9.35, skip ahead now to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Verse 14. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And it's interesting to me, right here, three times in Matthew, we hear this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. You will hear it five times in the New Testament. That exact phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. I love that because five is the number of grace in the Bible. And the gospel of the kingdom is a good news message of grace. Because it is a kingdom that is being built with a people who should not be in the kingdom. With the people who do not have a right, who have not earned the right to be in the kingdom, and yet because Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, because he was buried because he raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures, we have the doors to this kingdom opened to us. So it's now a message, a proclamation of good news of the kingdom. Now we can enter. And again, five times, the gospel of the kingdom. And here in Matthew 24:14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Don't miss that this is God's clear intention, that the reason Jesus says this is to be sure all the ends of the earth will hear the gospel of the kingdom. God is not intending to surprise anyone, though for many he will come like a thief in the night. But the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed before the end throughout all the world to all the nations before the kingdom comes. Indeed, the book of of Acts is an open-ended story of the church with Paul at the very end, Acts 28.31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So the gospel of the kingdom, our gospel, is intended to reach to the very ends of the earth. And it's so much more than writing a check and sending it off to missionaries in faraway places. Those dark regions of the world, right? And yet we are here in a dark region of the world. Washington still remains among the most unchurched states in our entire nation. Unchurched, anti-churched, de-churched. And so we have this gospel, this message, this good news of the coming kingdom. While people are, are all worried about our current election, we have a message that the kingdom's coming. And regardless of how you vote or how you view November, man, we have a message of good news and the time is ripe to tell the message. And not just to hold it among ourselves. Mark chapter 1. Keep going forward. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Mark 1:14. I'm going to pause here for just a minute. The evangelist Mark writes now after John had been taken into custody that is John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent." And believe in the Gospel. Now here, Jesus doesn't explicitly use the phrase the Gospel of the Kingdom, but He implicitly connects the Gospel with the Kingdom. He puts the two together and He says, Good news! The time is fulfilled. The Kingdom is at hand. That phrase at hand is egizo in the Greek and egizo means has come near or is drawing nigh and it's a verb in the Greek that implies that the kingdom is in process. It is in the process of coming near. Jesus says the kingdom's at hand. Here it comes. Now I I shared this midweek and I repeat it this morning and it's kind of the basis of my thinking based on something that was shared this last week. And that is this. The kingdom is already and not yet. The kingdom is already and is not yet. So break that down a little bit. If you're a note taker you can jot this down. The kingdom has already come near. The kingdom has already come near by Jesus. Or you could say the kingdom has already begun to draw nigh. It's at hand. It has come near. The time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand. How is the time fulfilled? I mean, Jesus, I don't believe ever spoke anything that wasn't true. And so he declares the time is fulfilled. Well, how, how's that, Jesus? Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. So are you, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven Shabuim. Your Bible might say weeks, weeks is a week translation. <laughs> it's Shabuim, it's a unit of seven. There will be seven sevens, and then there will be sixty-two sevens, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. That is so specific. It is it is stunning. 77s Seven and then 627s so add that up altogether and it's 697s so from the point that this decree was issued this decree to rebuild and reestablish Jerusalem from the issuing of that decree there will be 697s until Messiah the prince shows up and here Jesus says the time has been fulfilled what decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? We know of only one that fits that precisely, and that is the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. And that decree was given March 14, 445 B.C. Now we studied this in the book of Daniel. If you weren't with us, I invite you to go back, Daniel chapter 9, and study through that. But I'll tell you this much. Beginning on the date, on the issuing of that decree transferring from, because we have to do this, we have to transfer from the Jewish lunar calendar of 360 days over to the Gregorian solar calendar of 365 days in a year, and you adjust for leap years in between. If you travel 483 years, 69 sevens, units of seven years, that would be 173,880 days if you go from that decree to that point forward The prophecy says Messiah should arrive. Where do we land at that point? April 6th, A.D. 32. Which we believe was the date on which a Galilean rabbi from Nazareth rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. I'll tell you what, if anyone knew what time it was, Jesus did. And if anyone knows what time it is right now, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. He always had, he, man, if you need to know the time, ask Jesus. Don't look at your iPhone. You know, don't trust, Green, trust Greenwich. You trust Jesus to know the time. He might as well just have said, the time is fulfilled and you're looking the kingdom of God in the face. Because the first thing you need to launch a kingdom is a king. Right? Amen. Skip over now to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. The king was on the earth. The king came riding into Jerusalem on that donkey. Oh, you know the story, and it's marvelous, but to ride on a donkey? Why would a king ride on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey? Only in times of peace. Only to represent himself as a king of peace. And he is the fulfillment of the time. Jesus is. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And they must have been going, What does that mean? What's he trying to say? Is he talking about us? Some may have pridefully thought. Others, what are you getting at, Jesus? The kingdom is in your midst. Now remember what I said. The kingdom is already and is not yet. And what Jesus says here supports that in a stunning way. Two ways to understand this. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Two ways to get it. One is simply, I'm right here. The king was in their midst. The king was standing right there. And for Jesus to say, the kingdom of God is in your midst, He was. And He is the fulfillment of the kingdom. But the phrase in the Greek is entos su entos. Entos su entos. What Jesus literally said is, the kingdom of God is within your within. Within your within. In other words, the kingdom always begins germinating seeding, sprouting, growing. When the King is within, you're within. When the King gets into your heart, when the King is in your midst, when He becomes present in you, He begins to move and the kingdom begins to grow. And the kingdom spreads out. So it's marvelous the language that he chose. Yes, the king was there in their midst. And yes, the kingdom of God is within. You're within. You're not going to see it with big signs. You're not going to have an army come marching in. No, the kingdom of God is within. You're within, present in you. And Paul later wrote in Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You didn't enter Christ. He entered you. All you did was repent. All you did was welcome Him. All you did was cry that cry of faith, even the faith that God handed you so that you might receive Him. We all came out of darkness and into light. We all came out of sin into forgiveness. Because as the gospel tells us, Christ died for our sins. The kingdom has already come near by Jesus. And, and secondly, the kingdom is already a colony, a colony of Jesus. Do you realize how awesome this is? Think about this. We are living in the most exciting time in all history. For those Christians who say, ah, I wish I could go back to the first century. No, you don't. No, you don't. Oh, I wish I could go back to the dark ages and plant a church there. No, you don't. We are living in the most exciting time in history because these are the days <laughs> of Elijah. See, you're already so programmed. All I have to do is say, these are the days and you go, of Elijah. Elijah these are the days of the run up to the kingdom these are the days of the kingdom come and it may be at any time and we are a church that is a colony of life on a dead planet that's not original, I ripped that one off but it's so good we are a colony of life on a dead planet that is the church now process that for a moment the church is here to colonize The kingdom of God got within the within of Mary and Peter and James and John and the apostles. The kingdom of God got within the within of Paul. Got within the within of of people like like Phoebe, Silas and Timothy. And began to get within the within of, of people throughout the first century. The kingdom of God... And suddenly a little colony was birthed. And you know what a colony does? It colonizes. It establishes a place for the region that sent the colony to arrive. The king has sent us as a colonizing group until the kingdom is fully realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're a colony. And this little colony is here to subvert the current world system. Isn't that cool? To move in and throughout every aspect of this world to be Republicans and Democrats and Independents and Libertarians and Green Party and all the others. There are Christians all throughout. Did you know that? I know you might not have thought so. <laughs> Christians in places... I mean, you, you can't nail us down. You can't define us. You can't say all Christians are American. Or all Americans are Christian. You can't say that. All Christians are Western Europe. And you can't say that. Christians are everywhere. We just keep showing up. Because the king got within or within... And so we're this, we're this colony. Now listen, colony of Christ. What Jesus said, Matthew 16, 19, has been incredibly stirring. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, what does that mean? It means that we function in concert with heaven. It means that what we do here... Literally the language shall have been, and the Greek is, I I think, pretty specific on this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, it's already done. The reason we're doing it here is it was done there. The reason we're loosing something, freeing something up here is because it was already freed up there. We're just responding to our king. We're the colony getting little communiques from the king and responding in like kind to the king in union with heaven, connected to Jesus. And so this colony of life on truly a dead planet, an embassy, if you will, connected to heaven and functioning with the authority of the Spirit of God, with the compassion of Jesus, and not because the church is so good. Don't be confused. Don't start thinking of ourselves as, yeah, we're the answer to the world. No, we're not. We bring the answer to the world. We offer the answer to the world. We have ourselves been saved by the answer of the world. We are sent by the life-giving Spirit of Jesus Christ. We talked about this Wednesday night, 1 Corinthians 15.48. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is Adam, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that is Jesus. And this is what I love most about the kingdom already, is this subversive Aspect this this ability we have been sent to infiltrate and to permeate every culture, every society, every nation, and no nation or kingdom or election can stop it. Be encouraged that however this election turns is bad. No, no. Be encouraged. (laughs) Be encouraged that if this country gets very, very dark. Well, as Daniel Fusco likes to say, the darker it is, the brighter the light's gonna shine. So praise God. This is a good time to be on the planet and to be a part of this glorious colony that is world changing. And by the way, it puts a very profound spin on a familiar verse, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. Matthew 6.33. Our job is to seek the kingdom. To talk about the kingdom. To bring the gospel of the kingdom constantly, consistently, to seek the righteousness of God. And if we do that, Jesus gets within other people's within. It just happens. Well, the kingdom is already. But listen. Colonies always face conflict. Always. Indigenous life doesn't want the new kingdom. And so there are skirmishes and there are rebellions and there's outright war. Turn back now to Matthew 11, verse 12. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. That is such an interesting statement of Jesus. Luke quotes Jesus saying the same thing, but but from a different perspective. Luke sixteen, verse sixteen, just stay there in Matthew eleven twelve for a moment. But Luke sixteen sixteen says, Jesus speaking, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Okay, so that's how Luke heard it, or or at least that's how Luke reported it. Matthew says, violent men by force. Luke says, forcing their way into it. What does this mean? And some have taken this verse and, and they say, it means that we have to forcefully establish the kingdom. Uh, listen to it one more time. Truly, I say to you, among those—wait uh, a minute, verse twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And so, some say, what that what Jesus was saying is that we have to take it, establish it, fight for it. You know, be tenacious with it, and, and that's not a bad view. I mean, tenacity for this little colony moving throughout the world is not a bad idea. And being forceful with it, and taking hold of it, even violently. And I'm talking spiritually, of course. not saying go out there and start saying, believe in Jesus, you know. (laughs) But but that, that idea of forceful taking, as a matter of fact, you Bible students, check this out. The phrase in verse 12, violent men take it by force, is literally violent men harpazo by harpazo. The word harpazo is to catch up forcefully. And it's where we get our word for the rapture of the church, the harpazo, the catching up. Violent men harpazo by harpazo. Now, the word doesn't have to mean rapture. I mean, we, we assign it to that and think of it that way, but it, it just means a, a violent catching hold of. And so, what are you saying, Jesus? I want you to see the context. Listen to what. Exactly, he said, from the days of John the Baptist until now. Jesus frames it. He's talking about a very specific time. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. Now that is very specific. That is, I don't know, a year? From the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus says. So it wasn't that long. It was recent. And Jesus is describing, I believe, the reaction and response to the gospel of the kingdom at that time. How were people responding to the gospel of the kingdom? Imagine the masses. The throngs of people. The zealots ready to take on Rome. And to take it down or, or die trying. Messianic fervor we know historically was at a fever pitch when Jesus arrived on the scene in Israel. He literally throughout His ministry had to tamp it down. Don't tell anyone, you know, keep it quiet what just happened here. Don't make a big deal out of this. Don't share these things. John chapter 6, verse 15, I think, gives us a little insight to what Jesus means. Jesus perceiving they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king. And the word by force there is the same word as by force here. Biazo in the Greek. Intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, well, Jesus withdrew again into the mountain by Himself alone. How, How unusual. His brothers would say in John 7, look, if you're the Messiah, go proclaim it. What are you hiding out here for? So people were moving and add into all of that furor at the time and those who would force the kingship, the rule of Jesus before the kingdom was ready for its final establishment, add in the enemies of the gospel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes who would violently fight against this king, ultimately seeing him nailed up on a cross. And I think you get the idea of what Jesus is saying. That the kingdom within your within, uh, the kingdom that has come near and now it's already a colony, will by nature face conflict. Will by nature cause upheaval. Not because God wants it to, but because of our own rebellious sin nature to it. That That's why people respond negatively. Nothing else makes sense. But the sin in them... The rebellion that says, I don't want that, and pushes back against it and rejects it. (laughs) We fight against the very thing we need most. You know, we're like children in the doctor's office rejecting the shot. Because we think we know better, or or some of you don't like to give shots at all, so maybe that was a bad example out of (laughs) it. Are you willing to stand and fight for the kingdom knowing there will be conflict? Are you willing to be brave enough, brothers and sisters, to open your mouth to a non-believer knowing that there's a good chance they will get their back up? They will reject you. They might even reject your relationship. Are you willing to deal with and face the conflict? Now some might say, all right, now we're getting somewhere. Conflict. <laughs> Fighting for it. Lock and load. Ready the arsenal. Arm up. Here we go. And that's not Jesus' style. Turn over to John 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 18 verse 36 as Jesus stands before Pilate. And we're told Pilate said right before that your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answers my kingdom is not of this world. If My kingdom were of this world note this then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews but as it is my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly I'm a king. Or in other words, You said it, I'm a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Well, of course, we hear his voice because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans Romans 10.17 But Romans 10.14, Paul also wrote this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? you got to hear. you got to hear the Word. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, His kingdom does not come in the way this world does it. Can you imagine Jesus running for President of the United States? what would he tweet what would he say what kind of advertisements would go up on the TV screens how would he respond to the other candidates what would he do I'll tell you what by the standards of this nation he would lose he would lose because he would not engage the way our politicians engage he would not engage listen he would not engage in the same way the church so often engages. He wants to save the lost, not cut them off because, well, they might be offensive if they happen to be in here on a Sunday morning. My kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is not the way. God said, Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. We have to learn, we have to understand, come to who Jesus is. So how do we function in the already kingdom, not of this world, and not as the world fights? How do we fight back? What's our arsenal look like? (laughs) We love. And we love enough to offer the gospel of the kingdom to anyone who lacks it. But listen, this should shake us up a bit. Originally, that was Israel's job. It was Israel's task to proclaim the kingdom, to talk about, to even be the light of the world. But to the chief priests and the elders of Israel, Jesus said in Matthew 21.43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And He's talking about the colony of the church, which is supposed to bear fruit. Much fruit, not arms. And that's not a statement politically against gun control in the second amendment so John relax <laughs> I'm talking about the heart that our heart our heart's attitude my friends I can so easily fire off bullet points of truth that's not difficult for me to do with zero compassion by the way this is the way it is deal with it and when I do that it's out of fear It is out of self-preservation. Sadly, it's out of a need to be right. They're all wrong. I'm right. Well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So think about it. What was it that took down the fortress of your heart? What did it? What drew you to the Lord? What caused you to come to faith when when you accepted Jesus as Lord? If in fact you did. Paul said in Romans 2 verse 4, do we think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, not the harsh words of a pastor on a Sunday morning. The kingdom weapons of our warfare that take down strongholds? Let me give you a few. Prayer. I don't think there's anything we have that's more potent to deny room to the enemy. Prayer. To clear the air so people can make right choices about the Gospel of Jesus. Prayer. We have the sword of the Spirit. Word of God. We have faith, we have hope, unlike any hope the world can offer. We have love, unlike any the world has to offer. And Paul describes the kingdom as that of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're a colony of life. A colony of righteousness, joy, and peace. We plant, we cultivate, we bear fruit. How? Through grace and love and compassion and mercy and truth. Man, it just, it broke my heart to sit in that seminar. I I can't even tell you how heavy it was. And heavy because I know how I have responded and how I have reacted and how protective I have been of the church and the gospel. And who we're supposed to be and who they are, all those others. And I hear the words of Paul ringing out such were some of you. You were there. You want to know something that really broke my heart was when the first gentleman sharing in the seminar made a comment. In your churches, there are probably people struggling with same sex attraction, but they would never say it, and yet they are guilty, they are full of shame they feel horrible but they don't feel safe enough to ask for prayer and help i heard that and i thought how many things going on right here in the bridge am i completely unaware of how many sin struggles are people facing that they will never share because man if i do i'm out i've heard Rick preach If they know this about me, if they find out this, and yet over and over, the Bible says it's by grace we've been saved through faith. That is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no man can boast. We must cultivate a love that crumbles fortresses. And we were talking last week and and Rachel mentioned something that she had written down in a journal a while back. Kind of a parable. I call it Rachel's parable of the fortress and the vine. This is not scripture. I'm going to share it with you, but you need to understand this is not biblical doctrine. This is Rachel's musings. (laughs) But it's profound. Listen to this. This is right out of her journal. I asked for permission to do this. The under the sun world... The world of Ecclesiastes is like a massive fortress, built of concrete and solid steel, big as a small town. And the kingdom of God is like a vine that begins to grow directly underneath the fortress. At first, you don't even see it. Slowly, imperceptibly, over years and years, the vine begins to grow. What begins is tendrils, no bigger than a toothpick, thickened to the width of a finger, and then an arm... Throughout all this time, the fortress stands, seemingly unchanged. There might be a few cracks here and there. Maybe a few small bits of concrete have broken off. But for all intents and purposes, it has stood unchanged for centuries. And there is no reason to think that it won't stand unchanged for centuries more. Then, at one particular moment of one particular hour of one particular day... The living vine has tightened its grip on the dead structure such that it can no longer stand the strain. There's a cracking sound that might deafen the heavens and the fortress shudders and falls to dust. It all happens in the time it takes to draw one breath and yet it has been happening already ever since the seed of the vine first sprouted. So, I can have joy now if I have the eyes to see it with. The kingdom of God is an open secret growing steadily every day even as the evil in the world seems to remain unmoved. This is hard for me because I want the whole fortress to be gone. And at times the ugliness of it is overwhelming. But even at my most sorrowful, I have felt the sense that the answer is somehow both subtle and obvious. The feeling C.S. Lewis described as quote, the quiet laughter of a good friend next to you in the dark. The fortress is still standing, but it's only a matter of time. I couldn't agree more. That's the kingdom already. But the best news of the kingdom is this. Yes, it has already come near. And yes, it is already a colony. But the kingdom is also not yet. Because the kingdom is coming with Jesus. The kingdom is coming. Not the election is coming. The kingdom is coming. In its fullest form, Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 22, just listen to me as I read this to you. Psalm 22, we talked about last week, it's the psalm of the cross. You go through it, it's the one that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to how it ends. Verse 27 of Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the kingdoms. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, a seed will serve him. It will be told to the Lord Of the Lord to the coming generation, they will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. The kingdom is coming. It is not yet. Isaiah nine seven. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Zechariah fourteen nine. The Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Micah chapter four verse six. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. And gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. How encouraging is that? The kingdom is not yet. It is coming in Christ Jesus. And in your darkest days, read those passages. Go ahead and take out your iPhones and and click so you have those passages written out for you. And when you're just despairing, and when the nation's going down, and the nations of the world are going down, and you wonder, where's the hope? Where's the future? How are we going to get by? Read those passages. Consider the kingdom not yet. And Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The angels sound off. Midway through the tribulation. And they declare, here it is. Here it is. The kingdom of Christ. And we have the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ Jesus. Think about, as we conclude, think about Jesus. How did He open the door to the kingdom? who did he go to the indigents the rural poor the overlooked the underfed the broken down the busted up people he opened up the kingdom and offered them citizenship the sinner the tax collector those who were shunned by the religious stuffed shirts and i begin to wonder how stuffed is my shirt How religious have I become when I'm more concerned about protecting the truth in this place than I am about seeking the lost who are not here? What was Jesus' draw? I mean, as he began to move about the Galilee three short years, three years, and flip the world upside down, what was the draw? It wasn't the miracles. And it wasn't the healings, and it wasn't the casting out of demons or raising the dead. What was His draw? His draw was that Jesus came exuding the kingdom of God. Which is, first and foremost, a kingdom of forgiveness that comes rushing in the moment we say, I repent. I turn to God. Listen, no matter who you are, No matter what you've done, what guilt or shame you might be carrying, no matter how you might feel or what burden is on your back, Christ died for your sins. According to the Scriptures, He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and, and, He's coming again. And this is the good news of the Kingdom. So I invite you this morning to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's bow together. God, I pray that you will begin to move in this fellowship like you never have before. That our hearts would be more open and more receptive to lost and hurting and broken people than we have ever been before lord it is a little weird and it is a little crazy i know to ask that you would move and allow us to be harvesters where we are because we're kind of so far outside of the cities and the and the big areas the father there are people all around us who are despairing and hurting and broken and hopeless pray, Father, we will no longer be heard or seen or talked about as a teaching church, but as a church that loves people. Father, I commit to you, we will not stop teaching your word because it is one of our great tools of this message. But I pray you would change our hearts. You would affect our outreach, and not outreach as a typical churchy program. Impact the way we view people. Father, those whom we work with, some that we don't even want to rub shoulders with because they're of that ilk. They're that kind of person. I pray, Father, you will begin to remove from our eyes any of the opposition that we might feel toward anyone lost. And we might begin to see people as you see people. And to love people as you love people. In Jesus' name, Amen. It begins with repentance. And I want to invite you to consider, is there something that you need to repent of so that the kingdom can come? Is there something that you need to lay before the Lord and say, yes Lord, I have been intolerant. Yes, Lord, I, and I, I'm walking a fine line here, folks. I've been praying about this all week. The line between grace and truth. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. There, there is no compromising the truth of God's Word, but there is a way to bring truth with love that allows people to hear the truth. And that's what I'm trying to get to. And that's why I myself needed to repent because my heart's been pretty hard against anyone who, who might not be living by this truth. But I invite you to repent this morning. And you can come forward and do it while we're worshiping. I'm going to have Les just come up here and be on one side of the stage and I'll stand on the other. And come and just pray. And ask the Lord maybe to change your heart in an area that it needs changing. You know what that? I don't know what that is. I know what my issues are. I don't know yours. But I invite you to repent so the kingdom can begin to come. We cannot get out there and, and, and begin to harvest in the fields if our hearts are hard against those who are in the fields. So if you would repent before the Lord, I invite you to come. Let's stand up together and let's worship for minutes.